Hey there, welcome to this special bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and on this program, I'll be picking up where I left off last Friday as I was reading from Richard Watley's helpful book on the introduction to Christian evidences, which was first written back in the 1830s. In the first two lessons, Watley explained that most people throughout the world simply follow the religious beliefs and practices of their parents and of the surrounding country. But he says, if this approach is good and wholesome, then our distant forefathers who ended up rejecting paganism in favor of Christianity must have been wrong for abandoning the religion of their country and of their parents. Well, as it turns out, they not only had good reasons for doing so, but the very earliest Christians were specifically taught by the apostles that it was in fact the duty of every Christian to always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that you have. From the very beginning, Watley went on to say, faith in the Christian understanding was the complete opposite of blind faith, which offers no evidence or proof of any kind. No, the Christian faith was, is, and always should be rooted in truth. Well, here is lesson three of Watley's introduction to Christian evidences. You have been taught that Christians, even those who have not received what is called a learned education, ought to have some good reason for being Christians, and not to believe in our religion as the pagans do in theirs, merely because their fathers did so before them. But some persons suppose that, however strong the evidence may be for the truth of Christianity, these must be evidences only to the learned, who are able to examine ancient books and to read them in the original languages, and that an ordinary unlearned Christian must take their word for what they tell him. You do indeed read in English the accounts of what Jesus and his apostles said and did, and of what befell them. But the English book, which we call the Bible, professes to be a translation of what was originally written in Greek and Hebrew, which you do not understand. Therefore, someone may perhaps ask you, how can you know, except by taking the word of the learned for it, that there are these Greek and Hebrew originals, which have been handed down from ancient times? Or how can you be sure that our translations of them are faithful, except by trusting the translators? And therefore, some people will tell you that an unlearned Christian must, after all, be at the mercy of the learned in what relates to the very foundation of his faith. He must take their word, it will be said, for the very existence of the Bible in the original languages, and for the meaning of what is written in it. And therefore, he may as well at once take their word for everything, and believe in his religion on their assurance. And this is what many persons do. But others will be apt to say, how can we tell that the learned have not deceived us? Muslims take the word of learned men among them, and pagans do the same. And if the people have been imposed upon by their teachers in Islamic and pagan countries, how can we tell that it is not the same in Christian countries? What ground have we for trusting with such perfect confidence in our Christian teachers, that they are men who would not deceive us? The truth is, however, that an unlearned Christian may have very good grounds for being a believer, without placing his entire confidence in any man. He may have reason to believe that there are ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, though he never saw one, nor could he read it if he did. And he may be convinced that an English Bible gives the meaning of the original, though he may not trust completely to any one's word. In fact, he may have the same sort of evidence in this case, which everyone trusts in many other cases, where none but a madman would have any doubt at all. For instance, there is no one tolerably educated who does not know that there is such a country as France, though he may never have been there himself. 
Who is there that doubts whether there are such cities as London and Paris and Rome, though he may never have visited them? Most people are fully convinced that the world is round, though there be but a few who have sailed around it. There are many persons living in the inland parts of these British Isles who never saw the ocean, and yet none of them, even the most ignorant clowns, have any doubt that there is such a thing as the sea. We believe all these and many other such things because we have been told them. Now, suppose anyone should say, how do you know that travelers have not imposed upon you in all these matters, as it is well known that travelers are apt to do? Is there any traveler you can so fully trust in as to be quite sure he would not deceive you? What would you answer? I suppose you would say, one traveler might perhaps deceive us, or even two or three might possibly combine to propagate a false story in some case where hardly anyone would have the opportunity to detect them. But in these matters, there are hundreds and thousands who would be sure to contradict the accounts if they were not true, and travelers are often glad of an opportunity of detecting each other's mistakes. Many of them disagree with each other in several particulars respecting the cities of Paris and Rome, and if it had been false that there are any such cities at all, it is impossible but that the falsehood should have been speedily contradicted. It is the same with the existence of the sea, the roundness of the world, and the other things that were mentioned. It is in the same manner that we believe, on the word of astronomers, that the earth turns round every twenty-four hours, though we are insensible of the motion, and that the sun, which seems as if you could cover it with your hat, is immensely larger than the earth we inhabit, though there is not one person in ten thousand that has ever gone through the mathematical proof of this. And yet we have very good reason for believing it, not from any strong confidence in the honesty of any particular astronomer, but because the same things are attested by many different astronomers, who are so far from combining together in a false account that many of them rejoice in any opportunity of detecting each other's mistakes. Now, an unlearned man has just the same sort of reason for believing that there are ancient copies in Hebrew and Greek of the Christian sacred books and of the works of other ancient authors who mention some things connected with the origin of Christianity. There is no need for him to place full confidence in any particular man's honesty. For if any book were forged by some learned men in these days and put forth as a translation from an ancient book, there are many other learned men of this and of various other countries and of different religions who would be eager to make an inquiry and examine the question and would be sure to detect any forgery, especially on an important subject. And it's the same with translators. Many of these are at variance with each other as to the precise sense of some particular passage, and many of them are very much opposed to each other as to the doctrines which they believe to be taught in Scripture. But all the different versions of the Bible agree as to the main outline of the history and of the discourses recorded. And therefore, an unlearned Christian may be as sure of the general sense of the original as if he understood the language of it and could examine it for himself, because he is sure that unbelievers who are opposed to all Christians— or different sects of Christians who are opposed to each other, would not fail to point out any errors in the translations made by their opponents. Scholars have an opportunity to examine and inquire into the meaning of the original works, and therefore the very bitterness with which they dispute against each other proves that where they all agree, they must be right. All these ancient books, in short, and all the translations of them, are in the condition of witnesses placed in a witness box in a court of justice examined and cross-examined by friends and enemies, and brought face to face with each other, so as to make it certain that any falsehood or mistake will be brought to light. No one need doubt, therefore, that the books of our English New Testament are really translated from ancient originals in Greek, and are at least not forgeries of the present day, 
because unbelievers in Christianity would not have failed to expose such a forgery. But in the case of the books of the Old Testament, we have a remarkable proof that they could never have been forged by Christians at all, because they are preserved and highly revered by the unbelieving Jews in various parts of the world at this day. These are the scriptures which the Jews of Berea were commended for searching with diligent care. In these they found the prophecies to which the apostles were accustomed to refer as proving that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And the history goes on to relate that the consequence of their searching those scriptures was that many of them believed. Lesson 4. Prophecies But these Old Testament scriptures are, in some respects, more instructive to us even than to the persons who lived in the Apostles' time, on account of the more complete fulfillment of some of the prophecies that has since taken place. In the times of the Apostles, the religion of Jesus Christ was indeed spreading very rapidly, both among Jews and Gentiles, but still it was but a small and obscure portion of either that had embraced it, compared with those who either knew nothing of it or rejected it with scorn and hatred. Now, Jesus is, and has been for many ages, acknowledged as Lord in all the most civilized portions of the world. His disciples overthrew the religions of all the most powerful and enlightened nations, and produced without conquest and without the help of wealth or of human power or learning, the most wonderful change that was ever produced in men's opinions, and on the most important point. The number of those who profess Christianity at the present day is computed at about 250 million comprehending all the most civilized nations of the world. So great is this effect that every man, whether believer or unbeliever, if not totally ignorant of history, must allow that Jesus Christ was by far the most important and extraordinary person that ever appeared on earth, and that he effected the most wonderful revolution that ever was effected in the religion of mankind. Yet this wonderful change was made by a person of the Jewish nation, a nation which never was one of the greatest and most powerful, never at all equal in the fame of wisdom and of knowledge and skill in the arts of life to the Greeks and several other of the ancient nations. And all this was done by a person who was despised and persecuted and put to a shameful death by the Jews themselves, his own countrymen. If therefore you were to ask any unbeliever in Christianity, who was the most wonderful person that ever existed and who brought about the most extraordinary effect in the strangest and most wonderful manner? he could hardly help answering that Jesus of Nazareth was that person. And then you might ask him to explain how it happened, supposing our religion to be an invention of man, that all this had been foretold in the ancient prophecies of the Old Testament, in books which are carefully preserved and held in high reverence by the unbelieving Jews at this day. You may find such prophecies, as I am speaking of, in various parts of the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 22, it was prophesied that a great blessing to all the nations of the earth should spring from the nation that was to descend from Abraham. Now, when the descendants of Abraham did actually become a nation and did receive, through Moses, a religion which they held in the highest veneration, they would naturally expect this prophecy to refer to the extension of that very religion. 
and any one of them professing to be a prophet, but speaking really as a mere man, would have been sure to confirm that expectation. Yet it was foretold that the religion which the Israelites had received from Moses was to give place to a new one, as we find in Jeremiah 31.31, which says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. You may find other prophecies to the same effect in Jeremiah 32 and 33, Ezekiel 37, and Micah 4. It was prophesied likewise that it was not to be by the whole Jewish nation that these great effects were to be produced, but by one particular person of that nation. And what is still more remarkable, that this one promised Savior was to be despised and rejected by his own people, as you may read in Isaiah 52 and 53. And though he was to be put to death by them, he would also end up establishing a great and extensive kingdom. For prophecies of these several points, see Isaiah chapters 9 and 11 and Ezekiel 34. Now, many of these prophecies were delivered, as the unbelieving Jews of this day bear witness, over 600 years before the birth of Jesus, at a time in which the Jews were so far from being a great and powerful people that they had been conquered and brought into subjection to other nations. So that according to all human conjecture, nothing could have been more strange than the delivery of these prophecies and their fulfillment. And the proof from these prophecies is made very much the stronger by the number of distinct particulars which they mention, some of them seeming, at first sight, at variance with each other, but all of them agreeing with what has really taken place. Such a prophecy is like a complicated lock when you have found a key that opens it. An ordinary simple lock may be fitted by several different keys that were not made for it, just as a loose general kind of prediction of the coming of some great conqueror or the like may have been made by guesswork and may be found to agree with several different events. But the more complicated the lock, the more certain you are that a key which exactly fits it must be the right key, and that one of them, the key or the lock, must have been made for the other. And so it is with prophecies that contain many distinct and seemingly opposite particulars, when we see the events fulfilling all those particulars. This fulfillment by the widespread of Christ's religion among various nations, though it was expected by the early Christians, had not been seen by them, as it is by us. They saw that what Jesus had done and suffered did agree with the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he was born at the time when it had been foretold that the Christ was to come, and when the whole Jewish nation was expecting his coming, that he was acknowledged by his enemies to have wrought those miracles which had been prophesied of. Quote, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35, 5. Notwithstanding this, he was rejected and put to death, as was also foretold, and his disciples bore witness to his having risen again from the dead, which agreed with other prophecies, such as we find in Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53. All this led them to conclude, when they examined candidly, that the miracles which they saw were not the work of evil spirits, but that the gospel did come from God. On the other hand, we who have not actually seen the miracles which they saw have an advantage over them in seeing such extraordinary fulfillment of prophecy in what has happened since their time.
Lesson 5, Miracles, Part 1 The people who lived in the times of the apostles, though they had not seen so much as we have of the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, yet had seen them so far fulfilled in Jesus, as to afford good reasons for receiving him. But you may perhaps be inclined to wonder how they should need to search the Old Testament scriptures for a confirmation of what the apostles taught, if those apostles really performed such miracles as we read of. It may seem strange to you that men who healed the sick with a touch and displayed so many other signs far beyond human power should not have been at once believed when they called themselves God's messengers. But you must remember how much the people of those days were accustomed to believe in magic. Indeed, in much later times, long after Christianity prevailed, it was a very common notion that there were magicians who were able, through the help of evil demons, to work various miracles. And in the days of the apostles, this belief in the power of magic was very general, both among Jews and Gentiles. Those Jews among whom Jesus lived and who rejected him maintained that he was a magician who did mighty works through the prince of demons. This is not only related by the Christian writers of the New Testament, but it is a common tradition among the unbelieving Jews at this very day, who have among them an ancient book giving this account of the origin of Christianity. And there can be no doubt that this must have been, as our sacred writers tell us it is, what the adversaries of Jesus maintained from the first. For if those who lived on the spot in his time had denied or doubted the facts of the miracles and had declared that those accounts of them were false tales and that no miracles had ever really been wrought, we may be sure that the same would have been said ever after by their descendants. They would never have thought of rejecting the accounts given by their own ancestors and preferring that of the Christian writers. If therefore any of the Jews among whom Jesus lived had denied the fact of his miraculous powers, it is inconceivable that another generation of Jews should have betaken themselves to the pretense of magic to account for miracles which had never been acknowledged at the time, but had been reckoned impostures by the very people among whom they were said to have been performed. The pagan adversaries of Christianity also seem to have had the same persuasion on this subject as the Jews, and to have attributed the Christian miracles to magical art. We learn this from all the remains that have come down to us of the ancient writings against Christianity, and of the answers to them written by Christians. Now suppose that in the present day any one should appear professing to be sent from God, and to work miracles as a sign of his being so sent. You would naturally think that the only question would be as to the reality of the miracles, and that all men would at once believe him as soon as they were satisfied that he had performed something clearly beyond human power. But men certainly did not judge so in ancient times. It was not then only one question, but two, that had to be settled. First, whether any sign had really been displayed, which showed a power beyond that of man, and secondly, whether this supernatural power came from God or an evil demon. Now, after the former of these questions was decided, that is, after the fact of the miracles was admitted, the Jews were inclined still to doubt or disbelieve the religion which Jesus taught, because it was so different from what they had been used to expect, and hence it was that the greater part of them attributed his miracles to magic. But others were of a more candid mind, more noble as it appears in our translations, such as the people of Berea. These, by carefully searching the scriptures, satisfied themselves that the ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah did really agree with all that Jesus had done and suffered. And this it was that convinced them that his miracles were wrought not by evil spirits, but by the divine power, and thus they were brought to the conclusion that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. If then anyone should say to you, how great an advantage the people who lived in those days and saw miracles performed before their eyes must have had over us who only read of them in ancient books. And how can men in these days be expected to believe as firmly as they did? 
You may answer that different men's trials and advantages are pretty nearly balanced. The people who lived in those times were not any more than ourselves forced into belief whether they would or not, but were left to exercise candor in judging fairly from the evidence before them. Those of them who were resolved to yield to their prejudices against Jesus and to reject him found a ready excuse, an excuse which would not be listened to now, by attributing his miracles to the magical arts which in those days were commonly believed in. And again, though they saw many miracles which we only read of, they did not see that great miracle, as it may be called, which is before our eyes in the fulfillment of prophecy since their time. They could see indeed many prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, but we have an advantage over them in witnessing the more complete fulfillment of the prophecies respecting the wonderful spread of his religion. Folks, thanks for joining me for this special bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. For more information, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com.